Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Dr. Alyssa Eppel, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and co-director of the UCSF Obesity Center. Alyssa has done pioneering work in a number of areas of uh, food regulation and eating, and is especially noted for her work on stress and eating, as she did some of the pioneering work some years ago and has continued to do outstanding science in that area. So welcome, Alyssa. Delighted to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. So let's start with uh, one of the questions that I know got you going on this work in the first place, that there's this very interesting observation that stress makes some people eat more and some people eat less. And so the, the idea of a simple relationship between stress and eating obviously isn't the case. Can you tell us about some of your work and some of the primary findings? Sure. And I'll have to first point out that actually it was um, my advisor in graduate school, you, Kelly, <laughs> that um, suggested that there was this paradox um, that stress affects people differently, and that was a really uh, important area to understand. And you've been absolutely right. Every stone that uh, we turn, there, there's... They're big, interesting relationships and, and, and complex relationships given the both kind of interaction between neurobiology and psychology and environmental factors. So, um, so, so when we're under stress, we, it, stress is this kind of per, invisible but pervasive um, organizing principle in our lives. It affects how we sleep, how much we exercise, and particularly affects our, our appetite. And so... All of these kind of health behaviors add up to be to put us in more of this positive caloric balance state, promoting um, promoting uh, fat deposition. So let but, me ask a question mm-hmm. regarding that. So when people talk about risk factors for disease, mm-hmm. what comes to mind immediately are smoking, drinking, eating, those sort of things. Is stress in that ballpark? Is it you know when you add up all the effects of stress? Is it as, as consequential as those other risk factors? That is a great question. I would say that it is off the radar of public health for the most part, but there are some new, extremely compelling studies that if people were aware of, they would count it, say, in, you know, in the top five or ten risk factors. There is a study on heart disease by Youssef and Lancet several years ago that had the, it was the largest case-controlled study of people with heart attacks and case-match controls, and the top stress came out as one of the very top risk factors. And it, this examined people across all sorts, all, you know, many different countries, and uh, it, it showed that stress was even more powerful than many of the traditional cardiovascular risk factors that we so carefully monitor each year. Okay, so let's, that sounds good, and, and certainly puts stress on the, the map. That should be studied more and worked with more in public health settings. So let's get back to the question that you were answering before I interrupted about stress and eating. What have you found with them? So what we know, uh, let's start with the, um, with the animal study, since we can learn so much from um, manipulating stress. So we know that when uh, rats, for example, are under stress, it, it drives their food preference toward the calorically dense food. So they will choose lard and sugar over their boring, low-fat lab chow. And even if they're eating less food overall and they lose weight, they're gaining the the intra-abdominal 
fat. So that that's the type of fat pad that's that's more uh, toxic to health because it releases inflammatory factors, cortisol, and fats into our blood. Uh, so, so that points to the, this very interesting observation that what's being eaten may be, may be more important than how much is being eaten. Absolutely. So even if we are uh, if, even if we eat less during stress, we're one of those skinny, anxious people who actually loses weight during stress, we are probably still packing it in to that um, visceral fat uh, depot. So we're, we're developing more toxic stress. So for example, anorexics who barely have any stress, they have very high cortisol, the stress hormone, and much more intra-abdominal or you know, the toxic belly fat compared to all the other fat depots in their body. So even in that extreme case, there can be this altered um, unhealthy fat distribution. Okay, and what have, what's been found in humans? So in humans, we, we know from many lab studies that when people get stressed out uh, in the lab, they either reporting a lot of um, distress, feeling anxious, or secreting a lot of cortisol, this important stress hormone, they tend to select more high-fat sweet foods right after stress. And then the population-based data supports that. So for example, in, in those... British uh, study of civil servants, Whitehall, they found that people who feel a lot of stress at work, um, low job control, so they don't, they feel a lot of demand and pressure without a lot of control over their workload, these people tend to gain significant amounts of abdominal fat 20 years later. Wow, that's a very striking finding. Um, are there things going on in the environment that might be, in, I mean, currently in the environment that might um, be putting this all to a test? Well, absolutely. I think that the the toxic food environment that we're all exposed to has changed, has calibrated our brain to be more dependent on highly palatable food. So when we do something like try to, you know, dramatically decrease that uh, through dieting, that's going to backfire. Our, our reward center is is uh, calibrated toward this higher level where we need more. We need to keep our natural opioids up. And food is a natural reward. It's a very easy way of keeping us feeling good. So Alyssa, I know you've spoken about current um, conditions that are just happening in the world that might create stress and what effects those might have. Can you explain that? Sure. We know that as a society, we're under a tremendous amount of stress these days from the economic recession. But even before the recession hit, we were, the uh, surveys showed that people are reporting much more stress in their lives and feeling both economic stress as well as more psychological stress from work, relationships, um, being, being overly busy. So uh, what does this mean for our bodies? We know that stress gets under the skin. We have stress affects our brain, affects our cells, it even affects our DNA. So what is happening now at a societal level, um, given this kind of chronic stress that we're all under, is a really hard question to answer empirically. But if we look, for example, at stock prices and revenue, if we look at the market, what we see is a very striking trend. We see while most uh, businesses are, are dramatically dropping in revenue, at least a year ago they fell dramatically, there are a few businesses that were not falling and were in fact even thriving. And not surprisingly, that was the Golden Arches, McDonald's. In fact, they have had their highest revenues in the first quarter of this year than before, despite the recession. Other companies that haven't faltered, soda industry, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, um, 
the candy industry, the chocolate industry. So what is this telling us that people are, even though they're trying to pull back their spending, they're spending even more on sweets and high-fat food. So I believe that this trend reflects this hardwired, intricate link between feeling stress and drive for dense calories. You know, that's extremely interesting. Some people have tried to explain the thriving of those businesses just by pure economics that you can get a lot of calories at a pretty low cost if you go to a fast food place. And so it would make sense in economic hard times that these businesses would thrive. But you've made an interesting biological argument for it, that people may be drawn toward the very foods that those companies sell. Right. And one exception to this is fine chocolates. They're they're very expensive. So people shouldn't be, should be buying less of them. But in fact, the fine chocolate industry is also thriving. Very interesting. So you've made a case that one of the reasons stress may affect health is through its effect on behavior such as eating, and that's a fascinating relationship. But it's also clear, and you said this previously, but I'd just like to explore it a little bit more, that stress has its independent effects on health, no matter what it might do to something like eating. And you've done some really amazing work on stress and aging. Could you explain some of that? Sure. Well, I've had the good fortune to collaborate with Elizabeth Blackburn, who discovered the cell aging system about 25 years ago. And that is that when when our cells divide, they, uh, they tend to have this shortening of the caps at the ends of the chromosomes. So our chromosomes are protected by telomeres, um, these DNA caps. But as we age, the caps get shorter and shorter and worn down. And when they wear down early, that puts cells into this um, aged senescent state where they can't do their job anymore. And so, for example, in the immune system, senescent cells give off more pro-inflammatory cytokines. And it turns out that this measure of telomere shortening in our immune cells is a very strong predictor of morbidity and mortality, even stronger than traditional risk factors. So... We, uh, we set out to study whether psychological stress might be related to the length of one's telomeres in their white blood cells. That was in 2004. We found, dis- despite the great individual variability in telomere length, we found a striking relationship between uh, perceptions of stress, life stress, and the length of one's telomeres. And the, the size of the effect, you know, even shocked us. It was it was supposed to be a small pilot study where we were looking for, you know, possible trends, but the, but the pattern that emerged was, was very strong across measures of stress. So, for example, the duration of being a caregiver was also related to the length of one telomere, one's telomeres, and that's a more environmental factor rather than psychological. So that couldn't be explained by, for example, genetic uh, covariation between tendency to be stressed and tendency to have short telomeres. So since then, other people have replicated this finding, and we've also found it in an elderly sample. So now we're on to intervention, seeing if we reduce stress, can we actually slow down the rate of immune cell aging? Well, that work will be so important. Well, and obviously this is the highest quality science. I know your collaborator, Dr. Blackburn, was recently awarded the Nobel That's Prize. Right. So that must be interesting to collaborate with her. Uh, Okay, so let, you, you've hinted at this, but let's get right to it. What can people do? So if uh, stress is having these negative impacts on eating, are there things that, that you think people may do in order to offset this negative relationship? Well, I think that, um, you know, both 
at the policy level, community level, and individual level, there are important things we can do. Um, so if we, if we focus on what, what one can do as an individual, I think that the having, being surrounded by highly palatable food is just a great formula for eating it. It's almost deterministic. We are geared to eat, um, eat sweets, for example, or for some people it might be salty food, in a way that's uh, impulsive and hardwired and very hard to control. So for example, uh, Brian Wansink has done studies showing that if you have M&Ms right on your desk versus across the room, you eat something like five times as much. Just knowing that suggests that number one, control our food environment and don't expect to be exerting some type of superhuman willpower if you're surrounded by donuts. Um, so uh, if food is in front of us, that, that's, that's the biggest problem. And it is, and some, peop some people in some neighborhoods are just surrounded by highly palatable food. So they have uh, a very, very steep uphill battle. What we can do at the individual level is try to shift ourselves from kind of the, the baseline or default chronic stress state that we live in. We're always in a hurry. We are, uh, we're time pressured. We're, we're really tend to function more in a reactive mode most of the time rather than a thoughtful, more analytic mode. And so what that means at the brain level is that we are living based on our more, you know, impulsive drives that are driven subcortically, our stress system, our reward system, those determine our behavior much more than our prefrontal cortex. And the only way to stop eating really is our conscious effort, so our prefrontal cortex. Stress downregulates our uh, our analytical thinking, our prefrontal cortex activity, and upregulates these subcortical structures, which are such strong drivers of behavior. So to shift that, one of the most powerful ways is to really practice the skill of mindfulness. This is being in the present moment and being aware of our feel thoughts, feelings, and bodily sensations. So our current interventions, for example, try to help people um, be aware, be aware first of all, of feelings of of hunger, we've kind of droned those weak signals, um, or sorry, we've the hunger signal can be confused with many other signals. For example, stress can drive this type of you know, maybe false hunger, emotional hunger. Um, but we've been able to train people to recognize physical hunger and distinguish that from more kind of stress-driven emotional hunger. Well, it's nice to end on an optimistic note then. There are things people can do about this. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks today. so much, Kelly. So our guest today was. Alyssa Eppel, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and the co-director there of the Obesity Center. Uh, please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org to find a list of the other terrific podcasts that we've recorded, and also uh, get access to a variety of resources on food policy and obesity, including a free email newsletter that comes out monthly. Thank you.